This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome to New Books in Catholic Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. This channel and episode were created in collaboration with the American Catholic Historical Association, a conference of scholars, archivists, and teachers of Catholic studies. My name is Lauren Horn Griffin, and I'm a host of the channel and assistant professor in the Department of Philosophy and Religious Studies at Louisiana State University. Today, we'll be talking to Eric Hennes Del Pinal, assistant professor of religious studies at the University of North Carolina at Charlotte. He is one of the editors of a new book, Mediating Catholicism, Religion and Media in Global Catholic Imaginaries, published Bloomsbury in 2022. He co-edited the book with Mark Roscoe Lustau and Kristen Norgett, and they explore how Catholicism is produced, maintained, and challenged through processes of communication. This edited volume focuses on the ethnographic study of Catholicism and media. The chapters demonstrate how people engage with the Catholic mediascape and analyze the social, cultural, and political processes that underlie Catholic media and mediatization. Case studies examine Catholic practices in North America, Western and Eastern Europe, Latin America, Southeast Asia, and Africa, providing a truly comparative, decentered representation of global Catholicism. Eric Hennestel Pinal's chapter in particular examines how Guatemalan Catholics have variously used FM radio and internet streaming video to manage the uncertainties of producing spectacular public rituals during Holy Week. Focusing on the devotional labor that Catholic lay leaders do to mount these events and the fact that efficacy of that work is not always easy to assess, he asks how their various media practices, which are meant to counterbalance unprecedented social changes, have contributed to the mediatization of parish life. Eric, welcome to New Books in Catholic Studies. Thanks so much, Lauren. I'm glad to be here. Before we dive into the book, can you tell us a little bit about how this volume on religion and media came to be? You co-edited this with Mark Rostow-Lustow and Kristen Norgett. So what led you all to this type of analysis, departing perhaps from other scholarship on Catholicism and media? Yeah, thanks. That's a great question. And there's there's a long and kind of interesting story of how we got to the volume. And it all started at the AAR meetings in 2015, uh, which were in Atlanta. Uh, and Mark and I were sitting in the lobby of the big hotel there that was like one of the sets for one of the Hunger Game movies. It's a very memorable place uh, in some ways. And, um, yeah, we met a couple of years before, I think, and we were sort of chatting about our work. And he mentioned that he was doing this work with uh, Catholics uh, working at Radio Maria uh, in Romania. And uh, so I, I said, oh, yeah, you know, while I was doing my fieldwork in Guatemala, there was this moment right before Holy Week during Lent when the folks that I worked with uh, would get on the radio and sort of produce this one hour show uh, to drag and get people to come to um, to the processions. Um, and so we said, oh, it might be kind of interesting to put together a panel sort of around Catholics and media 
uh, kind of focus their on radio. And uh, so we did that. So, so we organized a panel for the uh, AAA, so for the anthropology meetings the following year in Minneapolis. Um, and uh, Kristen joined us for that and a, a few other folks as well. Um, and Kristen really thought that the project had legs and so encouraged us to like, you know, let, let's see if we could turn this into something bigger. Uh, let's see if we can get a, a special issue or, or a book out of it. Um, and she suggested that we might actually want to see if we could get funding to put together a symposium to really bring people together to talk about Catholicism and media in, in this uh, kind of ethnographic way that, that we've done. And so we started the process. Uh, we eventually got some funding from um, the uh, Canada's Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council, uh, one of their connection grants uh, that, that allowed us to do a lot of this. Uh, we also got a collaborative grant from the AAR uh, and College of the Holy Cross and some money. My university kicked in some money. And so in September of 2019, uh, we uh, invited all these folks to come uh, and do a three-day symposium in Quebec City. Um, and we, we chose to do it at this place, uh, this this really interesting lo locale, the uh, Monastère des Agustins, uh, which is um, now a sort of uh, wellness and health hotel, uh, but is actually built uh, on what uh, used to be uh, the Augustinian sisters um, uh, convent in Quebec, uh, where they operated like the very first hospital in the in, in the Americas north of Mexico City. And it, it, it's really old and interesting history. And we, we chose that location because one of the things that we that, that we discovered through our, our previous conversations was um, this idea that maybe thinking about media and mediation shouldn't begin or, or shouldn't end anyway with thinking about media in the way that we conventionally think about it today, right? Not, not thinking just about radio and TV and podcasts, but let's think about how um, other things that have been central to Catholicism also play these mediating or mediatizing functions. Uh, Kristen's argument about this really was that, uh, you know, in Latin America, the fates play this role, right? That, that, that the santos really are uh, mediums, they're media of a, of a way, you know, so when you, you when you petition uh, the Virginia Guadalupe or somebody for a miracle, right? She's acting as a conduit, as, as this kind of mediating force between uh, the human realm and the divine. And so putting it in that location really, I think, allowed us to think uh, much more broadly about this. Um, I will say also, just before we got to that conference, uh, we also put out a, we did put out a special issue of the Journal of Global Catholicism, uh, that's hosted by College of the Holy Cross, and it's uh, an open access, freely available journal. So I would encourage anybody that's interested in this, uh, and you know, while you're waiting for your book order uh, for for the Bloomsbury volume, uh, to check that out to sort of see some of the first steps of what this looks like. I believe we're volume three, issue number two, from 2019. Um, so yeah, that's of how this came together. Nice. Yeah, I didn't know about the volume. Yeah, I really liked um, both how you all used the location of the conference in the introduction to sort of frame some of these thematic um, inquiries that are central to the book. And um, yeah, as well as taking that broader approach to media, a more theoretical look at media. So so given that, the main question of the book really is what is the relationship between Catholicism and media? Um, and how should we conceive of both of those things, right? So how do the individual case studies in the volume do you think contribute to the understanding of that broader relationship? What do you think these essays, when taken together, show? Well, um, again, you know, that, that's really, that, that's what we were trying to find out, right? So when we started inviting people, it turned out that, you know, there, there was the, the people that we knew or knew about were doing a little bit of this work, but there wasn't anything sort of like fully focused on this, right? Whereas, you know, we knew plenty of literature sort of uh, on, on, uh, uh, 
evangelical Christianity in particular, Pentecostalism and media, right? There's a, a, a lively literature on sort of Islam and media, uh, but nothing in particular on Catholicism. And so we tried to get representatives from different parts of the world talking about different things that might fall under uh, the role of media. Radio did end up being uh, rather important for a number of them. Uh, but um, yeah, really trying to trying to think through that, you know, you know, there's sort of the question of like, okay, so why focused on media if you're not primarily a scholar of media, right? If if, if you're primarily a scholar of religion um, and, and an ethnographer, like uh, most of us who contributed to the volume are, uh, what do you actually get by thinking about media and mediatization? Um, and, and what we found was that it illuminates all sorts of other issues, right? So thinking about how media contributes to the formation of community, right? Uh, to, or, or to the very idea of how you place boundaries around the community, how you how you regulate uh, entry and exit into that. I say Katie Duggan's um, chapter in the book that looks at natural family planning uh, on Facebook really does an excellent job of, of um, raising those questions, right? Of, of what, the, what might it mean to think about community not as a face-to-face uh, thing and not even in that kind of old uh, Benedict Anderson imagined community, but in this sort of like mediated forms of interaction that we have uh, through there. You know, we think too about um, uh, media, not just as something that allows transmission, but something that also does certain kinds of blockages of um, of, of information, right? Uh, so in the intro chapter there, I sort of take the, the, the screens that used to separate these cloistered nuns from their families uh, who could visit them like once a year, right? <laughs> um, and, and to think about how um, the screens that we interact on, on our phones, on our on our computers, et cetera, uh, also play that kind of function of allowing certain forms of communication, but also blocking them off in, in, in certain kinds of ways. Um, so my chapter deals a little bit with that, um, I think, um, as well as uh, several others. Yeah, absolutely. I really liked, um, there are definitely benefits and drawbacks to bringing such a broad um, conception of media and uh, chapters that have such a broad conception of media together. So as you said, some of them focus on what we might think of as communication tools like radio, television, Facebook, and then others um, look at material culture, um, art, words, <laughs> um, uh, uh, saints uh, procession, right? So it is it is quite broad. And I thought that the editors did a really nice job of bringing a lot of things together in that in, in a really thorough and uh, and interesting introductory essay. So that, that was a really strong part of the book. So your essay in particular is based on your ethnographic research in Guatemala. Can you tell us a little bit about that and sort of set the scene for your chapter? Yeah. Uh, so that work is uh, work that I began uh getting close to 10 years ago now, right, as part of my, my dissertation field work. Uh, and it was based in the city of Coban, uh, in Antaverapaz, Guatemala, where I did um, research with a Catholic parish um, that, that in, in my published work I, I um, called with the pseudonym San Felipe, uh, that is a parish that's there primarily to serve um, the uh, Kekchi Maya population of this uh, of the of the city of Coban and its sort of outlying areas, um, and so it's a it's a rather interesting place. And if you if you want to read more about it, uh, my my monograph guarded by two jaguars just came out uh, also last year, uh, University of Arizona Press. So uh, that will give you a bit more information. But but my work there really focused around uh, initially the the role of language and communication in forming. Uh, different visions of what it meant to be both indigenous and Catholic. So at the time of, of my research, um, the charismatic Catholic renewal was uh, something that was sort of new and, and gaining a lot of ground in the parish. And there was a lot of worries over um, 
the languages that people were speaking in, in church, right? So the, the, the more the more traditionalist, uh, and I use that term advisedly, uh, folks uh, thought that mass should always be in Kekchi and that all the songs should be in Kekchi and that one should pray in Kekchi, uh, whereas the charismatics were um, singing a lot of hymns in Spanish. They were freely code switching between Spanish and Kekchi uh, during their masses. And there was a, a conflict that sort of emerged around that, right? That had to do uh, sort of with, with how... Um, the aesthetics of uh, worship, the language one spoke, uh, sort of signaled for them distinctive kinds of commitments to um, uh, to the community, to the church, to God. Uh, and so that's, my work was exploring that, right? And um, I hadn't really focused too much on the media part because the media part was just kind of this fun thing that I did uh, you know, a couple a couple weeks there during Lent when I, when I would accompany some of um, the, the, the men that were in leadership positions in the parish uh, to... Uh, the diocesan radio station uh, itself in a uh, in an old office in a that's part of a, a former uh, 16th century convent uh, set up by Dominicans there, and they would broadcast this this radio show um, during Lent, um, really trying to entreat people in the rural communities that the parish also served to come into town to be part of these processions. Um, and uh, so my analysis there really kind of focused on the way that that they tried to through the medium of radio try to, to channel and evoke um, their religious authority as lay leaders in the church and also sort of the, the sensorium of the processions uh, to to sort of make this effective appeal on people to come in and participate. Um, and all of this was in part grounded on the idea that they, they were sort of worried that people might not show up, right? Like these, you know, how can you, if you, if you need a certain number of people to carry the saints through uh, the city, how can you ensure that people are going to show up? They've always shown up, but there's this kind of, you know, as as uh, Pentecostal Christianity has grown, as the Charismatics were also opting out of this form of, of ritual life, uh, there was a sense that perhaps the community itself was in some sort of a peril. And so uh, my analysis of the radio shows it very much like what they were trying to do there with, with um, um, deal with some of those anxieties. Nice. Yeah. So kind of hearing your story of you're doing this ethnographic research and as you're sort of interested in this radio show, you're starting to sort of home in on how the media processes itself is actually sort of playing a role in constructing some of these very ideas that you're examining. So that's really interesting. Um, as Stig Harvard and others have demonstrated, like social actors sort of adjust their media practices given the technological and aesthetic nature of the medium. And your comparative framework here really draws that out and provides a specific example of how this Guatemalan parish produced these two different mediatized versions of Holy Week that appealed to different audiences. So can you tell us a little bit about both um, the mediatization via that FM radio show in 2005 and then walk us through its live streaming on in 2020? So what had happened was, right, that uh, you know, I'm sitting at home like all of us were um, in uh, March 2020, and then we go into pandemic lockdown. <laughs> And so does Guatemala. And, you know, so suddenly I, th this was about the time that I was sitting down to uh, expand uh, the version of the paper that I had given at the symposium the fall before to try and get it into a chapter length piece that, that I could publish in the volume. And, you know, suddenly we're in lockdown. And so like everybody else, like my media consumption shot way the heck up. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I would and I was like, I started to get Facebook messages uh, from some of the, the the people that I knew in Guatemala, 
you know, and one of them, uh, a, a lay worker of the church, wrote to me and says, you know, did, did you see like um, that the government has outlawed the processions because they went into actually a much stricter lockdown than the U.S. in a lot of ways. Um, they passed a law that said, you know, no gatherings of any kind and all in-person religious celebrations are suspended. Um, in fact, actually, it was uh, senior citizens couldn't walk out their front door legally in Guatemala for uh, the first few months of the pandemic. Like it was that kind of a thing. So none of that was going to happen. So we said, you know, we're in the middle of this really important ritual season. And what we've decided is we're going to uh, do some some uh, some Facebook live uh, videos about this. And so I said, well, that's interesting. Right. And what else do I have to do um, on a day where, where we're locked down? And so I, I logged into Facebook to to watch, uh, you know, some of the, the parishes sort of first furtive attempts at uh, doing things online, uh, which they eventually became quite successful at doing. Uh, as I described in the chapter, they've they've continued to do that, and now, in fact, they they've live cast a mass um, every Sunday, and in fact, sometimes more than that, and they've, they've turned part of the old sacristy into like this mini produ- video production uh, studio now, and like I have like three video cameras that are recording enough. Now, that's uh, you know all well and good, and like something that you would expect from like an American megachurch, right? But this is this is really you know, in their words, what they would say, a, a quite humble parish, right? A, a quite cash poor parish uh, where the majority of parishioners are, uh, you know, subsistence uh, agriculturalists, right? They, they, they work and live in small hamlets and villages. There's not a lot of access to cash. And so the fact that they very quickly got um, good and sophisticated at producing video, I think is, is rather extraordinary. Uh, but to the, you know, to, to what I was able to capture in, in the, um, in the article was me watching some of these first attempts as they were trying to figure out how could we turn this very uh, presential, uh, you know, uh, sensory filled uh, kind of ritual, right? When you when you're in these processions, like there's this loud music, there's the scent of the incense, there's like lights and uh, a lot of color and a lot of sort of like uh, touching and prior perception and. Like it, 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 it's, it's, a, it's an elaborated sensorium. And then, you know, how do you take that and try to uh, channel it into something that, that is consumable as video, right? How do you try to make um, some kind of uh, meaningful ritual without all of that? Um, and so, yeah, the, the, the second half of the article really came out of that, um, those circumstances of, of trying to sit there on my laptop at home and, and watch the thing. Uh, you know, and and as anybody who has done anything online knows, like we of course can't pay full attention to these things as we do in person because uh, as I was trying to watch um, uh, this via cruises that they were doing uh, through Facebook, some of my cousins in Guatemala noticed that I was on Facebook and, th- and so they're in lockdown and bored. And so they start sending me like uh, direct Facebook messages, right? Th- through the messenger app. So I've got things popping up all the time. And so that led to another way, you know, moment for me to sort of, try to think through like what is it that we gain and what is it that we lose from uh, this access to media you know on the one hand I would have never observed any of this stuff without uh, them broadcasting and me me being able to access it through this platform of social media on the other hand it it was a very different experience right I had no ability to follow up with people with questions uh, there I lost a lot of the context I could only see what the camera wanted me to see right I could only hear what the the uh, microphones could pick up uh i couldn't smell anything right except like the bread that was baking in my own kitchen right which had nothing to do with this so um just a, a 
and, and so that led me right thinking about the experience of being with them and producing that kind of media in this very restricted sense and then being on the other end and watching it as sort of a part of the audience and a consumer thinking about the the, the way that um but the, 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 these different forms of media what I call the broadcasting of radio, but also the narrow casting of, of social media, how um, both of those really lead to different um, experiences of, of doing ethnographic work. Yeah, absolutely. So um, how do you think that the producers of these sort of mediatized versions of Holy Week were thinking about them differently? So obviously you mentioned the very different circumstances under which these things happened. They're 15 years apart. Um, but like when when they sat down to do the radio show and th- and thinking about the what they were producing there, um, how was that different than when they sat down to do this via stream video streaming? Yeah. Um, well, so it was different people, right? So they they were as individuals probably thinking different things. Um, when when they were doing the radio thing, it wasn't the first time that they were doing it, right? There was already a bit of a mini tradition of doing this kind of radio thing, and I think radio. Uh, they were quite familiar with radio as consumers. Uh, you know, they, they were sort of they, they could adopt the, the kinds of voicings that that sounded like radio broadcasts. They also sort of traded on their experience as being catechists and 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 uh, delivering uh, sermons uh, during uh, lay led rituals as well. So they, they they were able to sort of trade on uh, their vocal skills to to create a, a very specific vision of what they wanted uh, not a vision on an audition right like a a purely auditory uh version of what they wanted and uh when they were trying to do the video thing right here's again now that we're trading on sort of like their experiences with televisual media right and and what tv should look like um but there was some tricky things there right about knowing when to cut a camera and how to frame things and how to light things um there was clearly an attempt to um um, not not so much in the Via Crucis, which was a kind of two camera stationary setup, but but the um, the Saint Sodality that that sponsored the um, the main Easter week procession, they posted one video later on where they just sort of took the camera through the empty streets, and this was this kind of eerie and haunting thing, right? But it was it was meant to sort of, in some ways, it replicated perhaps the vision of what the what the saint would have seen walking down the streets, except these streets instead of being crowded and full uh, and highly decorated uh, were mostly empty, except for some people had, had lit candles outside in front of their houses. Um, and so the, you know, there, there was interesting play there around sort of what, uh, what perspectives they were trying to, to put forward, uh, what kinds of claims they wanted to make themselves about a kind of community. Um, in a sense, the, the streaming video stuff aimed much more at a cosmopolitan or international vision of, of what, video production should look like, whereas I think the radio shows traded a little bit more on, on sort of a localized vision of religious authority within these communities um, as well. So, Wow, that's, yeah, really interesting context in which a lot of this is unfolding as well. Um, so you mentioned that you really, um, in the chapter, take into account um, issues of access as well. So at one point you mentioned that, oddly enough, um, the radio station, given that a lot of the kind of listeners are going to be rural, that they had access to FM radio, but not necessarily the live streams that are, are coming out now. Is that still the case? Or what, what does access look like in Guatemala now? 
Um, access to the video is getting better. I mean, so actually cell, cell phone coverage is quite good and people are, are getting access to, to cell phones, right? So they have smartphones where they could access this video. Uh, not a lot would have like laptops to watch the video, but you could see it on your phone. Um, with the, the trick about access though is what it costs to get, um, your data plan, right? To, to pay, to be able to, to the, the data streaming for you it, it can actually be quite expensive. And, and most people, uh, especially in these communities, I think most people in Guatemala don't pay, as we do in the U.S., uh, a monthly fee, you know, for X number of, of gigabytes or unlimited data or whatever. Rather, they sort of buy these cards that give uh, a bit of access, uh, e either for like a day or a week, or it's, you know, you buy a gigabyte of time. And so that uh, can get eaten up very quickly by uh, the streaming video. On the other hand, FM radios, oh, as, uh, there, there's a, uh, one of the Maya scholars who I cite, you know, so this is probably the one appliance that everybody has because it's cheap to get into to the radio. You can get a radio and as long as you have batteries, which are easy and portable, um, you can uh, use this all the time. Um, and I, I go a little bit more into the sort of like uh, the social economy of, of radios and in, in the piece that I did for the Journal of Global Catholicism, right? But, but there's even some cases in which um, at least during my original field work in the 2000s, and I imagine this is still the case, that one of the ways that you got messages to individuals in rural communities is that you would broadcast it on the radio, right? <laughs> so you would say, okay, so uh, there's a message for so-and-so, and if so-and-so wasn't within listening uh, of it, it, the idea was one of their neighbors would hear about this, right? And if so somebody was being summoned, uh, you know, somebody had to come and do business at, at City Hall or at the parish or something, they might just broadcast on the radio, right? That so-and-so is asked to please come into uh, the city on these days. And, and the idea was that somebody would use, somebody would let the individual know about that broadcast, right? And so there, there's, a, there's an interesting way, again, about how um, broadcasting and narrowcasting and peer-to-peer -peer forms of communication get jammed up or, or get hacked and used in different ways uh, in this context, which again, leads us to ask the question of like, you know, what, what kinds of roles are people actually, um, or, or, or to what functions are they actually using their media for, right? That, that isn't always the, uh, what, what we might imagine it to be, right? Or what the creators of, of uh, these things uh, might imagine it to be. Right. Yeah. And I, that's one thing I liked about your chapter in particular is that you're sort of highlighting these questions of media affordances and how that shapes and even produces ideas of Catholic experience. But your example is also really contextualized and specific to the community in which it's embedded. And that's never forgotten throughout the essay. And that it's similar in, in all of the essays in the volume. They're very contextualized and embedded in a local um, social reality. Right. So one more question about the book as a whole is that the subtitle is um, Religion and Media in Global Catholic Imaginaries. So what did you all as editors take to be a Catholic imaginary or a Catholic imagination? And in what sense is it is it global? Yeah, uh, well, you know, so there's uh, there's, there's an allusion there. Uh, scholars of Catholicism will recognize the allusion to um, Andrew Greeley's work, right? The famous sociologist that uh, writes the Catholic imagination. Uh, that has sort of become this touchstone for for the anthropology of Catholicism and so far as that exists as a field, uh, in a sense that I think what a lot of us are doing is responding to that. Uh, and I was I want you know I will say the first time that I read Greeley's work I thought it was you know really interesting and exciting and he makes this argument for there being this sort of Catholic imagination that's broad based. Uh, if you read the footnotes um, and, and if you read carefully, uh, you know he actually says well you know 
really all my data comes from what he calls the North Atlantic world. And there's this footnote where he says like, yeah, but you know, as far as I can tell, people in Africa and Latin America are basically doing the same thing that Europeans are doing. Uh, as an anthropologist, right? I want to push back against that. And so w one of the things that, that we were really conscious about doing and, and, you know, trying to bring people who are working in really different parts of the world, which, you know, maybe we don't get in a sense, we, di we didn't end up with cases that were all that comparable, but, but, by, but by being broad and expansive, part of what uh, we wanted to do there was really push against the idea of like the kind of singularity of a Catholic imaginary and to think that there might be multiple overlapping imaginaries, right? That, that this might actually be a much more heterogeneous field uh, than uh, the Catholic Church wants to present itself, right? So it, it, it wants to present itself as global and universal and, and singular, apostolic to, I suppose, right? And uh, what what we as as uh, anthropologists and ethnographers of Catholicism really wanted to point out is like the, the local context really matters in uh, really significant ways, right? That uh, that. We, we want to tease out uh, some of those complications uh, at the local level, uh, because if we want to posit that there is something distinctly Catholic about these imaginaries, right, we cannot start from the presupposition that, yeah, there's a Catholic imagination and all that's left to do is describe it. No, we've got to do the actual empirical work of figuring out what Catholics are doing, and then we can start to make the comparisons and, and, and make the, the arguments about that if we want them. Oh. Yeah, nice. That's and yeah, that's exactly what I saw coming out of the the chapters when taken together. Really, was a look at the sheer variety, sometimes the dizzying variety of ways in which kind of ideas of Catholicism and Catholic communities and Catholic practices are really produced through um, mediatic processes. So, um, so as this, that's one strength of bringing such a broad group, right? In both conceptions of Catholicism and conceptions of media together kind of under one um, one banner. So that was really interesting. All right, final question in our last minute or two here. What are you working on now? What's your upcoming project? Yeah, uh, so it's a, it's, a, it's a question that starts with media and it's, it's work again in Guatemala with the same Kekchi folks. Uh, but um, a few years ago when I was down there, uh, walking actually, in, in fact, to, to, up to the radio office where we produced those shows way back in uh, when, uh, I saw uh, taped to, to the wall um, a sign that says, now for sale, and they said a picture of Laudato Si and Kekchi. So a Kekchi language adaptation, it's not a strict translation, but it's an adaptation of the Pope, uh, of Pope Francis's encyclical about um, uh, Catholicism and climate change. And so what I've been working on now is looking at that and looking at how people in the region are drawing on both that kind of uh, integral ecology from the Catholic side, but also um, sort of Maya cosmological ideas about reciprocity between human beings and the spirit world and how that gets mediated through um, through nature uh, and through ritual um, uh, as a resource for talking about climate change. So I'm excited. I've, I've sort of, uh, that's work that I wanted to start uh, right before the pandemic. And it's, uh, of course that slowed it down, uh, but, um, next year in 2024, I'm going to get a chance to do some, some really uh, intense long-term field research around that and hopefully, um, yeah, get that project going and, and, and try to understand how th these two environmentalist discourses are being brought together uh, to talk about uh, a, a part of the world that it really is severely uh, firsthand feeling the effects of climate change. 
Yeah, absolutely. So keeping that broader idea of media and how sort of ideas um, are communicated through these the, those sorts of dual discourses. That sounds fascinating. And I can't wait to have you back on to talk about that project. Eric, thank you so much for talking with me today. And again, the book is Mediating Catholicism, Religion and Media in Global Catholic Imaginaries, edited by Eric Hennes del Pinal, Mark Roscoe Lustau, and Kristen Norgit. This is uh, New Books in Catholic Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network.